Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar, weekdays at 2 on Mile High Sports. A very happy Friday to you. You've made it through the work week, so pat yourself on the back. Congratulations. That's always good. Your uh, your reward is that the Denver Nuggets have never been closer to making the NBA Finals than they are right now. Sean Trotar, Sandy Clough with you. The Nuggets... Get it done in game two, 108 to 103, uh, a game in which it looked like was likely to be the Lakers for the vast majority of the night. Turns around when Jamal Murray just goes bonkers after going four for 13 at one point in the game, then goes six for uh, seven. Actually, three for 15. Pardon me, three for, point, thank you. Yeah, three for 15. 15 for nine. And, uh, and, and goes absolutely off in the fourth quarter. Uh, we'll talk about that. That's where you see the good and the bad of Jamal Murray all in one game. But it, when it's, uh, again, we talked about it after game one. And where it was a closer finish than you than team people wanted, Sandy, the lessons you learned are cheaper when it comes with a victory. And the Nuggets also did something that I have never seen before in his 20-year career. LeBron James at multiple times looked 38 years old. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I thought so. And, uh, the Athletic has a wonderful piece today highlighting the differences between not the Lakers from 2020 in the bubble to 2023, but LeBron James and Anthony Davis from 2020 to 2023. And, of course, we were made more than aware last night, even before the game began, that Teams in conference finals, historically around the NBA, have come back from 0-2 deficits. Mm -hmm. And it was particularly worth mentioning, apparently, that LeBron James' Cleveland Cavaliers did it Twice. twice. Here's the difference, and I'll borrow from Shaquille O'Neal's famous line, 38 ain't 28, bro. LeBron James, at age 33, in 2018, took his Cavaliers past the Boston Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals after being down 0-2. LeBron James, at age 22 in 2007, took the Cavaliers down 0-2 in the Eastern Conference Finals against Detroit to four straight victories. And I say he took them to four straight victories because there wasn't a lot around him True. back then. There was a little more in 2018. Kyrie Irving, for example, was still there in 2018, and the Cavs had been champions just two years before. 
So it wasn't unthinkable that those two Cleveland teams could come back as recently as 2019. Toronto in their championship season down to Giannis and the Bucks, 0-2 in the Eastern Conference Finals, won four straight games. Oklahoma City with Kevin Durant against the soon-to-be champion San Antonio Spurs. Two years later, the Spurs were champions. In 2012, Oklahoma City was down 0-2 to San Antonio, won four straight games, and won the series. Chicago beat the Knicks in 1993 in the middle of their dynasty. Down 0-2 to the Knicks, came back in the Eastern Conference Finals, won four straight games. And uh, something that still, as a fan, scars me a bit, (laughs) the team of my youth, the New York Knickerbockers, defending world champions in 1971, had uh, made patsies of the Baltimore Bullets the previous two years in the playoffs. One time in a four-game sweep, The other time in their championship season of 1970, a seven-game series win. Again, had home court for the Eastern Conference Finals against the Bullets for the first time, meeting them not in the first round, but the Eastern Conference Finals. Took a 2-0 lead and lost four of the next five games, including Game 7 at Madison Square Garden. I can still see Wes Unsell coming out to deflect Bill Bradley's last-second shot from the corner that would have tied the game and sent it into overtime. So, six times, it has happened before. Here's the good news for the Nuggets. 56 other times, the 2-0 team has gone on to win the series, in most cases, quite handily. I'll take those percentages. I didn't think that down by a game that last night was a must-win for the Lakers. But once they got up 11 in the third quarter, it became must win. Yeah, you can't lose that one. And On the road, you have to you have it. Not you can't, close out. can't lose it. The Nuggets outscored the Lakers down the stretch 51 to 35 mm-hmm. to win by five. And yes, they did some not headed things to uh, lose most, but not all, of their 12 point lead at 96. To 84. But that was after a 15 to 1 run, by the way, for the Nuggets. And then, and then they did do the Jamal pre- Murray, the prevent on fest thing again, reared its ugly head. Was, we'll talk about it. It was, was just as responsible, mm-hmm. just as responsible for Denver's game two win as Nikola Jokic was for the game one win. And the 23 points in the fourth quarter, listen, that, that's 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 all time stuff. stuff. That's right. that that's all time greatness. We mentioned several categories before the game yesterday on our program. And George Carl highlighted some of them. Transition D, checkmark for the Nuggets last night. Rebounding. Again, a major advantage for Denver, 11-4 to on the offensive yeah, boards. And not 49-40 overall. three ball. Well, in the fourth quarter alone, <laughs> the three ball, they made big threes and enough threes in the fourth quarter to last an entire game. Well, they did. But, of course, for the game, made 14. Sandy, this team made the seven Lakers threes. The Lakers made eight. Seven threes in the first three quarters is what right. the Nuggets had. 
Seven, seven more made, in the fourth. Seven more in the fourth. I mean, I, and almost, the Lakers made eight. So it, in, it, in total, you know, the Nuggets almost had as many threes in the fourth quarter as the Lakers had the entire. And five quarter. of those eight, by the way, from Austin Reed. Those are three big ones. Five of the eight. Sixty to fifty was the margin of difference favoring Denver in the second half. The combination of Jokic and Murray outscored James and Davis sixty to forty. Not only that, but the Nugget pair shot forty four point four percent for the game. The Laker duo, 38.2%. And there were massive coaching mistakes made by Darvin Ham in the ballgame last night and some good work done, particularly between the third and fourth quarters when there was an unusually long delay because they were reviewing apparently two or three things at once and finally made the determination that .5 seconds remained in the third quarter. So they went out with the same people on the floor for both sides, played the last half a second of the third quarter, then they broke again, as they customarily do between the third and fourth quarters. Got commercials to that gave <laughs> I mean, the Nuggets in real paid. time almost 10 minutes so that Michael Malone could deviate from his usual strategy of sitting Nikola Jokic at the start of the fourth quarter. There were two advantages in playing Jokic at the start of the fourth quarter with all of that time spent resting Mm -hmm. between the third and fourth quarters. One was, he's Nikola Jokic. Of course, they're better when he's on the floor. Two, it forced the Lakers to concentrate on Jokic and assume that Murray would not hurt them. And they were so cocky about that that Ham had both Schroeder and Vanderbilt, who had done exceptional defensive jobs on Murray, on the bench at the start of the fourth quarter in maybe the single Biggest example of dereliction of coaching duty that I've seen in the playoffs so far this year. I I, mean, I, I was baffled by that. Not that they would concentrate on Jokic. Well, of course, but you're that they on would Jokic, leave yeah. not just one guy who had successfully guarded Murray through the first three quarters, but take two guys off. who had done it and bench them both. A very poorly managed game by Darvin Ham last night. So. Things are looking very rosy for the Nuggets, who certainly have control, if not command, of this series. And I would say that and will say that on Tuesday afternoon, even if the Lakers tomorrow night and on Monday night win twice and even the series. The series will still be Denver's to lose. And as George Carl put it, I think on our podcast, that uh, we – Put out yesterday. When you're up 2-0, you don't have to really sweat things until game five. And that's only if you lose the next two games. Right. Even in game five, right. if you're up 3-1, for example, if you're up 4-0, there is no game five. <laughs> You've won the series. Oh, but if, only. if it's three games to one, you don't really have to stress out over game five. You'd rather win it and wrap it up at home. But 
it, it really now puts all the pressure on the Lakers. And uh, I didn't say game two was a must win for the Lakers because it really wasn't. It wasn't. But game three sure uh, as hell game is. Game three is, absolutely. And and the, the Nuggets did a fine job of sticking with this. Uh, they did not have their strongest game, but th- this is the kind of game that tested their resiliency. Yes. They passed that test. It, it tested their... Murray has passed that test more this year, don't you think? Yes. And I, I think that when you look at the way this team played... Uh, on the whole, again, by the way, and the funny thing is, of course, we're overlooking uh, another, I guess in this case, it wasn't generationally transcendent game by Nikola Jokic, but 23-17-12 matched up against the quote-unquote best defensive player in the league. Not too shabby. Well, um, I actually thought oh, and by the way, defense holding, was better than his yes, offense. Holding that said player to four for 15 right. shooting, right. And, and which he didn't do in the first game, Jokic by the was way. was not being a rover. Jokic ends up being Davis's no. primary defender. I, I know, but he was the 15. same way in game one, mm-hmm. and Davis scorched him. That, on the defensive end, I'm not saying Nicole that Jokic, Jokic didn't outplay him, very but quickly. I'm saying in game one, Davis won 11 for 19 against mm-hmm. Nikola Jokic and never turned the ball over. Last night he was turning the ball over and actually four times turned it over basically because of Jokic. And in addition to that, he shot four for 15. Right. Not 11 for 19, four for 15. four assists and four turnovers. Jokic's defense Mm -hmm. now can be talked about with a full-throated effect rather than whispering. Everyone has to stop thinking that defense is only about shot blocking. Every now and then he'll get a steal, and every now and then... Uh, you know, he'll patrol the paint and he'll hold his own. Yeah. But you have no. to whisper it a little bit. Now, now you don't have to whisper. positioning, knows how to use his weight, quick hands. Yeah. Uh, defense is more than about blocking shots and you're a big man. To be fair, Jokic turned it over five times. But he had 12 but, assists. But he also four. had 12 assists. <laughs> Davis had four assists and four turnovers. You do the math. One-to-one's not going to get it done. Two and uh, a half to Jokic one, was plus seven in a five-point game. And Davis was minus 10 in a five-point game. Uh, LeBron James was, for all his mistakes last night, and there were plenty of them, LeBron was plus four in 40 minutes. Uh, they were better with LeBron on the floor. I didn't think LeBron I'm played a sure. bad game. I, he I, had bad they were, moments. They were plus five in the seven minutes he had bad moments. that Davis was out. There so, were a couple times where LeBron's body... You could tell he, he felt his age at 38. Of course, there, everyone focuses yes, on the uh, on the the, the dunk that he was trying to get the, the Lakers up by 10 and really build momentum, and it slipped out of his hands. They still uh, got up 10 anyway. Right. And I also look at that and think, well, okay, LeBron, I've seen LeBron James do that once in his career. He's dunked like 5,000 yeah. times. Right. Uh, okay, it was probably due. But you know what struck me, the thing with the with age, and I said at the end of game one, he, he looked a little... Uh, a little when he had the turnover late, that was part of it. But then when he made a steal, he made a beautiful anticipation on a pass, uh, picked it late, went down the the left sideline, and then cut across the baseline to do an up and under. That time you could tell LeBron James, and hey, we've all been there. The body didn't do what he was used to it doing. He was used to getting more elevation so he could get on the other side of that hoop and you lay it in. Remember the foot injury and the ankle he twisted. And you could t- it just he just didn't get the lift he thought he would get. You could tell, and LeBron is dealing with this at a, at the worst possible time. And you can tell, quite frankly, that it's it's kind of stunning to him. And 
he was still very good. He had notable moments in which he made mistakes or the body betrayed him a little bit. Well, but he was still, I thought he was their best player. And I thought he was made quite a bit. Yes. I, Austin, I Austin Reeves was the second. I, I actually thought uh, Reeves, by the end of the game, had 22 with only two turnovers. Five, five uh, LeBron had 22 and three. Reeves was the only three-point threat the Lakers the four steals and two box for LeBron. I I, yeah. I thought he was good, and that's one of the reasons for, well, for the Nuggets. You know what? You have to be excited. He was. They're just better. He was on the defensive end for three quarters, and he was spending a lot of time guarding Jokic, mm-hmm. and Jokic didn't score a ton last night. I still uh, would put forward the idea, and I think the Lakers tried to do this, and for a little while during the game it seemed to be working. Make Jokic a score and take away the pass. I know that's a bit counterintuitive because with most people, you're saying, given the pass, you don't want him going off for 40 or 50 points. Even though in playoff games, when guys score 40 or 50, a lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time, the teams lose. I mean, Curry scored 50 in a game seven, Golden State won. Tatum scored 51 in a game seven just the other day, and Boston won. So it's not always a bad thing obviously to score 40 or 50 points. But again, in these 30, 20, 10 games of which there have been only four in playoff history, mm-hmm. uh, two by Jokic, one by Kareem, one by Wilt, four <laughs> games, right? Good four com- games. That's good company. Right? Yeah. Two wins, two losses. So it's yep. a flip of the coin. Even with triple double numbers as fantastic as 30, 20, 10 or well, 30 plus 20 plus 10 plus point for Jokic. but but you know it it still for me came down to a more impressive win for the nuggets than game one in my opinion because certainly they didn't have a stretch like they did in game one during the first half they didn't have any of that last no. night but down 11 in the third quarter i i'm telling you to me, if the Lakers had closed out, they'd be the favorites Certainly. this afternoon. Oh, you'd be talking about the Nuggets needing to win if, three of the next five with three in L.A. You if bet the they Nuggets would. came back to win, no, no matter how they do it, no matter what the margin was, no matter how the end of the game got a little sticky again when they had a big lead, forget about all that. Just win the game, then it's... It's the Nuggets series. These are two really hard losses for the Lakers to absorb. And I know it's the Lakers, and I know it's LeBron James, and I know it's Anthony Davis. But they had a, an opportunity to complete a comeback day. They weren't able to do it in game one. They found something with Hachimura in game one. Here we are talking. Of course, the narrative was all about and Hachimura the Lakers. was great last night, too. For a half. I, and on the offensive side, he was really great. But you know what? He, he was. I mean, you, you get 21 points give, give me a second in 30 here. minutes from you, this guy. Yeah, but the, the idea in, in Hachimura's case, you know, comes up 7-for-7 seven seven to start the first half, uh, gets interviewed at halftime on television. Lisa Salters, who had now finally got to see Nicole Jokic play in person, so enjoy. But the uh, he, he talked about, well, I'll just be more aggressive because they don't have a rim protector. And that's, the, again, the idea, you know, that that's a, sort of a slight against Jokic's defense. Well, but he I was texting some, that way the first did, half. But I was <laughs> texting with some friends, and, and one of them told me, what are you going to do about Hachimura? And I'm like, if Hachimura, who was at that point, you know, had, uh, had uh, a lot he of was points at halftime. He high score. Yes. I said, if Hachimura has 30 points in this game, uh, I 
will not literally eat a hat because I'm not sure that's healthy, but I did promise I would eat part of a hat. Well, because uh, I was 100 it's not going to happen. Okay. Hachimura was not going to go 14 for 14. He was not going to score 30 points. And even if he did, if Hachimura is the Lakers' leading scorer, I'll take that all night uh, if I'm uh, the Nuggets. Okay. Uh, okay. And, and, but but M- Murray had 14 points after three quarters. Of course. Listen, it didn't look like anybody was get going to get anywhere near 30. But Murray is Murray a scorer. Went nuts in the fourth quarter. Hachimura but, is not. But 23 Murray's points. I'm, I'm crediting Murray. Murray. To take that for granted, as I think some oh, have, I, I, I sense. Well, it's playoff Murray, oh, and I, he does that all the time. Well, nobody does that all the time. I criticized him on social media, actually, during the game, because well, I thought at one point he went back to his habit. The, nug- I, the Nuggets were so not too. playing well. He started dribbling out, taking fadeaways at the back end of the, of the shot clock, mm-hmm. playing a little bit of hero ball like he does. Now, yeah. the funny thing is but you can, you can, criticize, now you can criticize a player and also be impressed with the player at the same time. When Jamal Murray got in the rhythm of the offense – especially in the fourth, because, again, the Lakers sort of played a very, very bizarre defensive choice and let him back and let him back in. Then, yeah, he got hot. And there is I've I've seen very few uh, players that feed off the crowd the way Jamal Murray does. And uh, he got it rolling. And that's what happens. Great shooters. Sometimes it happens. I want to give Michael Malone a little more credit than I think most people have uh, from what I've heard since uh, uh, the game ended last night for his words to Jamal Murray, and Jamal Murray described the words, not Michael Malone. It was Jamal Murray who said that Malone had told him, don't allow your offense to dictate your game. Find a way to get your defense into the game and build off that. Now, as analysis goes, after three quarters, I'm not sure I would have analyzed Murray's game to that point and concluded that, well, if he just gets it going defensively, the offense will come. But for a coach to say that to a player who's 3 for 15, I think that's an extraordinary coaching comment for Malone to have made. And uh, maybe he heard a little bit from teammates, but that message directly from Malone, I think, came at the right time and served the purpose of relaxing him, and, it, that is, and strangely yeah. enough, he played the whole fourth quarter for at least the last six minutes. He was obviously exhausted, but I thought he was uptight for three quarters. That's, I thought he was forcing things, and in the fourth quarter, due to Malone's words and maybe even partially to fatigue, he loosened up in a good way and stopped Pressing this is one of the arguments that I've had about Michael Malone that he does well. There are things you can nitpick. He does know the personalities of his players, and I've argued this. I've said this on the show. I said it yesterday. In the NBA, X's and O's are important. Understanding the personalities of the players you're coaching is more important. Malone hit all the right buttons. We'll have a chance to talk about this with our good friend Justin Adams from CBS News Colorado. He'll join us next on Miley Sports. Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar, presented by Burnham Law. Hire the winner at BurnhamLaw.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. Well, we're going to lean on our friends at CBS News Colorado today, by the way, 
because not only uh, do we have our next guest, we'll also have Romy Bean a little later in the show because we know where we want to go and get information. And our next guest, Justin Adams, you can follow him on Twitter at Justin Adams TV. Justin is uh, as local as they get, Marbella High School, University of Colorado, and uh, a guy that, like me, has grown up watching this team. And Justin, I, I guess before we really dig into the nitty gritty of it, uh, this was unlike game one. The Nuggets weren't holding a lead that they they tore out to. They had to uh, grind and they had to grip and they had to claw back an inch at a time before everything settled in. Uh, you played football up at the University of Colorado. Games mm-hmm. like that are the kinds that build stronger teams. Well, it is just like game two that they had, the Nuggets had against the Phoenix Suns also at home. That was a game that was slowed down, a game that had to grind out, but also a game that they were down later on in the 33rd quarter as well. So um, it was one of those moments, though, with what Jamal Murray did. The only time he had, you know, you could talk about what he did in the bubble. But the only time he really did that when it was a home game in the playoffs, you have to go back to game two against San Antonio when they were down in that game, down by, I think, double digits in that game. And in many respects, should have lost that game and were able to come back and win, especially after Nikola Jokic didn't even score a point. So when you talk about building character, when you talk about, hey, it's everybody doing something in order to win. But the other thing that I don't think a lot of people were talking about, it was all the max players. They had a huge input in that fourth quarter. We know Jamal Murray, but how about the shots from MPJ? How about the defense from MPJ? Even how about that boneheaded inbound pass? And- <laughs> Going to live without that one. Right. But it was all those different things that added up in order for Denver to win that game was huge last night. Well, I I think this was actually a more impressive win than game one was because they obviously weren't going to score 132 points. That was quickly evident even during the first quarter when they scored 27. And by halftime, they had only 48. So it obviously wasn't going to be a high-scoring game, more of a regression to the mean, I think, uh, a, a game that may be a little more low-scoring than we'll see for the rest of the series. But uh, I I thought, and we just talked about it, I'd like to get your reaction because uh, you know the psychology of sports and you know about coaching. Uh, when I thought of what Michael Malone said to Jamal Murray when he was going badly, and uh, this must have been right around the end of the third quarter, start of the fourth. Find a way to get your defense into the game. Don't allow your offense to dictate your game. Find a way to get your defense into the game and then build off that. Uh, it reminded me of, and this is something you'll relate to, it reminded me of a rainy day in Lincoln, Nebraska in 1990. <laughs> When the Colorado Buffaloes were down twelve to nothing, and Eric Bieniemy through three quarters had fumbled about as often as Nebraska had put up points. All right, mm-hmm. and Bill McCartney and Eric Bieniemy's teammates did not give up on Eric Bieniemy, and he played the fourth quarter of that game the same way Jamal Murray played the fourth quarter last night. And if not for McCartney and support from his teammates, CU would not have been national champions in 1990, at least according to the Associated Press Bowl. 
Uh, I love the way that we're going down history, Sandy. I, I absolutely love this. How about this? He fumbled, what, at least four times? Yeah. Um, we, it we know seemed like 12, but uh, it was fewer than, than but, that. And it was Sandy, a rainy day. After Right. But don't forget the year before, too, where J.J. Flanagan fumbled. Um, was mm-hmm. it 89? No, I think it was 88 where J.J. Flanagan fumbled also. And that could have been a chance where CU could have won that game back in 88. So you're talking about, hey, you're going to play in Lincoln, Nebraska, where – the last time you played, you had a great chance to win, and you True. fumbled that game again. True. Now you play in 1990, you're about to fumble this game again. It's terrible conditions, and you just continue to play. You just continue to stay in the game. The defense kept you in a game against a top three opponent at the time, and you were able to go and win that ball game. Look at the other side for the Denver Nuggets. They were down by double digits, and the game was in the favor of the Lakers in every way. They slowed down the pace. Um, the only way that the Nuggets were going to get back into it was through their transition points because when it was in a half-court game, the Nuggets couldn't get a good shot. Jamal Murray at one point was three for 13. He was like four of, what, what five of 17 before he really got hot. Yeah, yeah, and, man, that's that's right. And he was three for 15. And, and yeah. he hit his first two shots in the fourth quarter, so he got to five for 17. But three for 15 and then to go eight for nine after that? It's amazing. Just, he's, amazing. Yeah, he just saw one shot go in, and then one of those – I mean, it's just one of those indescribable shots that only Jamal Murray can hit where he's, like, fading away and it shouldn't go in and there's no reason – oh, look, the shot went in. That's exactly what would happen. And then you get to a point where you're literally looking at him shoot and you say, okay, eventually at some point he has to miss, and he makes another one. I mean, the one where he comes off the screen roll at the top of the key, where he already hit three three-pointers, and he hit one – and then he goes and points at Mike Breen and says, bang. Like, that was just ridiculous. But in between there, though, don't forget Michael Porter Jr., he also had a three-pointer that made it a 12-point advantage. So in between all that, it was the defense that got them going. It was the defense that helped them get to those transition points and really helped their offense begin to move because they couldn't do much in the half-court game. So it was a huge, huge win for the Nuggets. Uh, it, it- Really was, and and you, you point out the the sort of shot making that Murray has. It's certainly what he's capable of, and he feeds off the crowd really well. But it, it feels to me like the Lakers, who were uh, excited about the play of Hachimura at the end of the game, and Hachimura played very well. I, I I'm not taking it away from him, but they've tried the Hachimura gambit. They lost. Uh, LeBron James, for the most part, defensively was impactful. They lost. Uh, Anthony Davis did what he's done in the playoffs. Had one good game and followed it up with something a little bit less than that. They lost. The national media was tripping all over themselves about the Lakers' adjustments. I've noticed today there are far fewer of those comments going around because in only two games, the Lakers have already thrown about five different things at the Nuggets, and they just walked away with two losses, both of which in games with a little better breaks, they could have won. Yeah, I mean, if D'Angelo Russell actually hits a couple of shots, <laughs> that would be different. If LeBron would actually hit a three-pointer, the game would be different, right? I mean, they made so many different adjustments. I, I don't think you – I was watching a game last night with a former uh, coach, a former basketball coach, and you know he's a Laker fan, but he was actually explaining to me the whole time, like, hey, this is what they're doing. The Lakers are actually getting absolutely everything they want. They're chewing up the clock by walking up the ball sure. up the court. They're Mm -hmm. able to really slow things down. The Nuggets, their offense looked out of sync, and I will tell you, it was very out of sync. It was not crisp. I mean, we all saw that. And then for that 10-0 run at the end of the third quarter, 
that's what really changed everything because you started to get that momentum, which went over to the fourth quarter. And so that's what really got the Nuggets going from there was that 10-0 run. But, again, this this was one of those games where you talk about the different adjustments that were made. Chris Braun you didn't see a lot of um, in the second half. Uh, Jeff Green had a couple of minutes, but there were impactful minutes in the second half. And just to see the way that Michael Porter Jr. was able to play the full fourth quarter, um, Nikola Jokic, for the first time in the playoffs, actually maybe for the first time in the season, he did not come. He didn't go on to uh, go to the bench at the end of the third quarter. He actually started in the fourth quarter, then took a quick breather. Smart. Those type of moments were huge, and those were we look at Michael Malone, and the one criticism that we could all say about him after game one was, "Hey, what was the in-game adjustment that you made?" Because we all look to say, okay, here comes Rui Hachimura. He's on Jokic. Where's that adjustment that you're making in order to, you know, get a good shot um, offensively? So we were wondering what would happen in game two. Bringing Jokic um, and keeping him in the game, keeping MPJ in the game and not bringing anybody else was those two adjustments that really turned the game into Mega's favor. I agree with you. And uh, really, they were a six-man team last Mm -hmm. night. And – I'll tell you, first half, maybe even through three quarters, I thought the only guy who was really delivering was Jokic. Uh, Brown was scoring a little bit, but but not a lot. And actually, I thought Brown was better in game two by the end of the game than he had been in game one. And um, I'm looking around. I didn't see any other nugget or any other player in this game anywhere near plus 16. That's what Bruce Brown was in 37 well-deserved minutes. This is your sixth man playing all but 11 minutes of the game, and about seven of those minutes happened before he ever got into the game. So if you're taking the last, let's say, 40 minutes of the game, he played pretty close to 35 out of those 40 minutes, if not more than 35 out of the 40. And uh, I, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that as good as Hachimura was for the Lakers off their bench, I I thought Brown throughout the game did more damage at, at both ends of the floor, didn't turn it over once in 37 minutes, had a block, a steal, 12 points, five rebounds, three assists. And while there's no doubt that Jokic was responsible primarily for the game one win and Murray, of course, for the game two win, Bruce Brown made the Nugget bench better in game two than it had been in game one. And Sandy, he had to play early. The reason why he had to play early. Well, the two fouls on Caldwell yeah. Pope, you're right. He he Huge. did he did come in earlier in the first quarter. I had forgotten about that, but as soon as Caldwell Pope got the two fouls, Brown came in, mm-hmm. and they basically held their own to the extent that it was just a five-point deficit at the half. And that's the reason why they won. I mean, there's so many small things that add up, but Christian Brown, he has to come in, right? Because MPJ, he picks up two fouls within the first five minutes. KCP picks up two fouls within the first five minutes. So automatically your rotation is off. So every plan that you had was already off in this game, which comes back to what happens in the end of the third quarter, beginning of the fourth quarter, where you have Jokic still in the game. We have Jamal Murray. You have to play every minute. Hey, we can't have you come off the bench. you got to go and play. To have your two stars, really your three max players, be able to say, hey, we have to rely on you, and we're not going to give you any rest. And for each player to be able to produce, I get it. Jokic didn't score in the fourth quarter. 
that may be something that has to be discussed as we continue on in this series because he hasn't scored um, a field goal in the fourth quarter in this series yet. That has to change in L.A. for the Nuggets to be successful. But your players that you have relied on all year, who have we, we have harped on all year, all showed up when they needed it the most. That is huge. He is Justin Adams. Make sure you give him a follow at Justin Adams TV on Twitter. Catch him over at CBS News Colorado. And uh, this is obviously going to be a very, very interesting week. Uh, at this at this weekend, Justin's going to be a lot of fun. I appreciate all your insights on this. Uh, it is a unique time to be uh, following the Denver Nuggets. So I appreciate all the insight. Two games away, guys. Like I can't believe to say that we are two games away from the NBA Finals. Come on, Nuggets. Thank you. That's it. That's it. And Justin Adams is exactly right. Thanks, Justin. Very welcome, guys. See you. Uh, It is obviously a a very uh, exciting time for the Denver Nuggets. We will get back to it. We'll have an opportunity to talk about it with uh, Justin's colleague, Romy Bean, at the top of the hour. But uh, we would be remiss. We did not talk about uh, the passing of one of the greatest legends in the uh, history of the NFL, the history of sport, quite frankly. Uh, Jim Brown, we will take a look at that next on Mile High Sports. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Well, it is uh, generally a positive Friday for those in Nuggets Nation. Uh, one of the sports' greatest athletes in history passed away earlier today. Uh, Jim Brown, the uh, uh, one of the few people in the argument for being the best football player in history, passes away at the age of 87. His wife, Monique announced that uh, on Instagram, writing it is with profound sadness that I asked the passing of my husband, Jim Brown, who passed peacefully last night at our L.A. home to the world. He was an activist, actor, and football star, but to our family, he's a loving and wonderful husband, father, and grandfather. Our hearts are broken. I think Jim Brown evolved uh, personally, and uh, you know, I, I'll leave it at that because I, I don't pretend to know him, although uh, there was one occasion back in the, the late 1980s uh, when I was working at KOA Radio, and we had Jim Brown in studio uh, to oh, wow. talk about a book that uh, had just been released that uh, obviously was a collaboration, but it was Jim Brown's voice uh, in that book, and it was entitled Out of Bounds. And I remember, uh, you know, we chit-chatted a little. Jim Turner was co-hosting with me at the time, and uh, Jim Brown had respect for Jim Turner as a former player, two former players, Obviously, there was a connection there. And Jim Turner had read that book. I had also read the book. And I was driving the show as you are now. And my first question to Jim was, I'm, I'm fascinated by the title because it has so many meanings. As a football player, you stayed inbounds. In fact, you remember Jim Brown's criticism of Franco Harris mm-hmm. uh, during Harris's heyday that uh, – he didn't have quite as much respect as he had, for, let's say, a Walter Payton, because Walter Payton wouldn't run out of bounds, and Franco Harris would occasionally run out of bounds. And Jim Brown had a little more respect for Walter Payton on that basis and wasn't shy about expressing that view. So as an interesting title because as a football player, you never ran out of bounds, but in your life, you spent most of your time out of bounds. And he looked at me and I said, wow, you got it. 
<laughs> and, and, and I had his respect at that point. And if I hadn't read the book and it just, I had obviously read the book too. Uh, and not just the, the name of the book, but I, I thought he struck me. Now I'm just talking about my own experience. Mm-hmm. If you gave him respect and reading his book was giving him respect, he gave you respect right, if he's in return. Come on to talk about his book. You should read his book. But it's amazing. Well, you're right. How many people don't actually not do that? Every talk show True. host who had Jim Brown on at that particular time, and there were others in town mm-hmm. who had had him on and hadn't read the book, and they were admonished on the air by Jim Brown for not having <laughs> done so. So it, 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 we were the your first. Homework, we were we were the first to get him uh, in in the sequence of interviews uh, he did, and I. I've, I've always remembered that, but I also fundamentally remember that Jim Brown was the first NFL player, first football player I ever really paid any attention to um, because uh, I didn't grow up in Green Bay and I was a giant fan, but probably more of an AFL fan mm-hmm. at that time. And yet Jim Brown, you, you couldn't miss him. I mean, you couldn't ignore – he was the best player in the game when the running back was not just a romantic figure. He was a figure of substance, and no one was more substantive than Jim Brown as a player. Uh, whether you uh, liked his activism, uh, his outspokenness away from uh, the field, his effect on uh, uh, racial dynamics during the decade of the 1960s, which was considerable. Jim Brown was right up there with Bill Russell and Muhammad Ali and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, mm-hmm. uh, then Lou Alcindor, and 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 a host of others. But he was he he was part of a change agent in professional football during a decade when professional football overtook Major League Baseball as the number one sport in America. And I always thought, although he never played in a Super Bowl game, that Jim Brown had a lot to do with that. And uh, the other thing I remember about him as a player was uh, his Browns playing the Baltimore Colts in 1964 for the NFL championship at the time. And Jim Brown being such a force that the great Baltimore Colt defense, a team coached by Don Shula, Hall of Famer, one of the great coaches of all time, devoted almost entirely their defensive resources to stopping Jim Brown so that Frank Ryan, the quarterback, and wide receiver Gary Collins could have a field day because you talk about eight men in the box. They might have had ten in the box that day and one guy covering Gary Collins, and that was the ball game, and Jim Brown was the ideal decoy. And even in defeat the next year against the Green Bay Packers in the mud of – Green Bay, the Packers won the game. Paul Horning was the star, but Jim Brown, you couldn't take your eyes off Jim Brown. He was the only thing the Browns had against the Packers that day. He was all that they had. He was the only threat, again, in the mud where throwing passes to Gary Collins all day wasn't probably going to work uh, all that well. And uh, one other note, uh, Jim Brown should have been the Heisman Trophy winner in 1956 instead it was paul horning he's considered the the quarterback the the quarterback paul horning Mm -hmm. was of uh, 
you know, it was the quarterback of Notre Dame. Notre Dame did not have a good team that, in that year. In but, 2020, but Jim Paul Brown Hunter. was recognized as the greatest player in the history of college right. football right. by right. the college football. But he never won the Heisman. Right. He never won the Heisman. And in 56, uh, Dick Schapp, uh, just out of Cornell, had a vote for the Heisman Trophy. He voted for Jim Brown. When Jim Brown didn't win, Dick Schapp, for the rest of his life, had them take his Heisman vote away. He refused to vote for the Heisman Trophy after that. It was such a farce. And remember, this was 1956. That's the kind of impact Jim Brown had. And, oh, yeah, in addition to being the greatest football player of all time, he was also the greatest lacrosse player who ever lived. And if you ever saw any clips of him at Syracuse playing lacrosse, you'd know that to that's, be that's the case. That's the amazing part. Is and there I've are... asked some of the leading most credible figures in the you, sport he was of better lacrosse, lacrosse than he was a football who, who was the greatest <laughs> lacrosse player of all time and they all say including the former du lacrosse coach bill tierney Jimmy, a no more legend the greatest coach in the history of lacrosse bill tierney didn't even blink before he said jim brown jim Steffen, the former uh, washington uh, defensive back was once famously asked you know how do you stop jim brown and he had maybe the best answer ever the simplest one Hold on and wait for help. I mean, that was basically it. And uh, but and, he would run through double and triple yeah. team tackles. And and and, and the, he would run through them. Brown's legacy is is, uh, it is complicated. And and, and it, for the most part, it is good. But you'd be remiss uh, in the book out of, out of bounds. Actually, you, you talked about you know there were um, he, he talked about some of the affairs and everything. He'd been arrested seven times for assault in his, in his life. And this once on, on his wife, the case. Yeah. Uh, yep, exactly. And, um, uh, yeah, spent actually spent four months in jail when he broke, uh, Modi's window of a car with a shovel. So, I mean, it, that there, there were, it, it, it gets tempting at times when you have people who are extraordinary to only look at the things that are good. And I think at a certain yes. point in time, that oh, also part does of the story. We talked about it. With it them. does that person a disservice. And uh, it, it, I think you have to look at all of it, but you're talking about someone who was a, a major uh, civil rights activist. You mentioned that with Bill Russell, with, uh, with Muhammad Ali. Remember when with, they gathered around Kareem Ali Abdul-Jabbar. in 1967 and supported him uh, a wide group, but they were the consequential figures in sports during the 1960s. Uh, all of them were. Willie Davis was part of the group. I think Curtis McClinton of the Kansas City Chiefs uh, was a part of that uh, group. There were others, but um, the, the, the big people, especially in football and basketball at the time, uh, were all there for Muhammad Ali, and they all backed Muhammad Ali. And without that kind of support, uh, I'm not sure Ali could have withstood uh, his being banned from boxing, uh, basically through the late 1960s. Remember too that uh, Jim Brown left at the age of 29, retired. He did, and uh, he, he, had, did. he had just won and the he MVP. Stuck to it, too. He just won the MVP. Yeah. Art Modell didn't want to pay him any more money. Of course, the charmer that Art Modell was. Uh, yeah. Paramount Pictures stepped in and offered him a three movie deal. And they he paid made him far more, more money than he made at the NFL. And, uh, and and good with a quip. Um, at the at the time, uh, one of the most films out of the three was one called Hundred Rifles." He had a, yes. he had a love scene with one uh, Raquel Welch. Welch. Yeah. Um, his exact quote was, "I knew when you went from Sam Huff to Raquel Welch, it wasn't exactly bad <laughs> stuff." And you got paid more. <laughs> you got paid more to do for it. doing the movie, and you got a love scene with Raquel Welch. Um, 
you know what was, you mentioned Sam Huff. I'm not sure, even though he played in New York, Sam Huff wouldn't have had, uh, would have had quite the reputation he did without Jim Brown saying that Sam Huff was a great football player. I'll give you another one that's closer to home. I'm not sure that Floyd Little ever gets into the Hall of Fame. Um, even through the efforts of people in this city, and I like to think I played a very, very, very small role in that. But when Jim Brown said Floyd Little was a great running back, and had Jim Brown's respect, both Syracuse guys, mm-hmm. and obviously Little came along quite a few years afterwards. Uh, Ernie Davis, the late Ernie Davis, was right in between. Another, you yep, talk about right. wow, a, a, a running oh, back holy, holy. factory. Yeah, Jim Brown, Ernie Davis, Floyd Little. Oh, and Larry Zonka was in there too, but he was a fullback, and he blocked for Floyd Little. <laughs> right? Uh, and... When Jim Brown said Floyd Little was a great player and deserved to be in the Hall of Fame, and it was ridiculous that he wasn't, I think some recalcitrant voters gave it a little bit of additional thought and got off their lazy rear ends and actually did some actual research <laughs> into Floyd Little. But it took Jim Brown, I think, in many ways to convince the old hardline NFL guys that an AFL guy was a legitimate choice for the Hall of Fame. Jim Brown passes away at the age of 87. Uh, obviously a, a, a career that will remain uh, relevant in the NFL for literally decades to go at, at bare minimum. The Denver Nuggets uh, are up 2-0 two, two in the Western Conference Finals. That, of course, is terrific news for Nuggets fans. How, what the odds on coming back to Denver? Maybe with three wins. We'll talk about it with CBS News Colorado's Romy B next on Lila Sports.